Hello, and welcome back to the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. My name is Zayd Wahab, and today we will finally introduce a brand new chapter in Abbasid history. After nearly a decade of destruction, the anarchy in Samarra was over, and the state was no longer helplessly divided against itself. Despite these promising developments, it was still an uphill battle for the Abbasids. The chaos of the last nine years reduced the caliphate to a mere shadow of its former self and left it surrounded by vicious adversaries. This bleak situation meant that a renaissance remained far-fetched, but with enough blood, gold, and good fortune, survival could perhaps be transmuted into something more. Episode 73, Al-Mu'tamid and the Birth of a New Order been a while since we've had a strong caliph in charge of the Ummah. Although al-Mutawakkil was installed by the Turkish generals and their associates from the civil administration in 847, he was quick to assert his autonomy and ruled the roost until his assassination in late 861. It's a trifling detail, but you may have noticed that he was the last caliph to have his name be a standalone title for an episode. I've added a clause to the names of those who succeeded him to indicate that they were unworthy of the spotlight, essentially unhelpful as vantages for understanding their times. Although the anarchy is officially over, I decided to include this caliph with the four powerless Abbasids who preceded him, as he fit that mold quite well. So, if our latest leader was as unimpressive as the handful who came before him, how did his administration succeed in re-establishing control and preventing the caliphate from backsliding into the mayhem it had just emerged from? The best way to begin answering this question would be to introduce the man. But, alas, as with his weak predecessors, history has not deigned to record much about him. As usual, we don't really have anything on his childhood or upbringing, but he doesn't come up at all until he was chosen to succeed al-Muhtadi. Before we went on break this summer, we described how that caliph met his aunt on the battlefield after Musa ibn Bugha, leader of the newly united Turkish armies, vanquished him for executing other generals, Musa's little brother among them. Now that there was a vacancy at the top, Musa needed a Abbasid who knew better than to get in the way, and as luck would have it, one of al-Mutawakkil's children was conveniently imprisoned in the royal palace in Samarra. This was how the 28-year-old Ahmad became al-Mu'tamid al-Allah, he who depends on God. He was the third of al-Mutawakkil's children to become caliph, five years younger than the patricide al-Muntasir, and five years older than the ill-fated al-Mu'taz. But these three were not the only notable children of the murdered caliph al-Mutawakkil. There was also Talha, the military-minded son who had led the siege of Baghdad and extinguished the last fitna in favor of his brother al-Mu'taz. By commanding Samarra's armies in 865, 
he earned the respect of the soldiers and built valuable relationships with several members of the Turkish leadership. He was especially close to Musa ibn Bugha, leading some narrations to claim that Talha was offered the throne first, but rejected it. This assertion can't be true, as he was in faraway Mecca at the time. It would have taken no less than a week for news of al-Muhtadi's death to reach him, and another for him to ride back to the capital. Even though he couldn't have been offered the top job, he must have been summoned to court immediately, because Talha showed up in Samarra only a couple weeks later. He rendezvoused with his old friend Musa, and was invested with ultimate jurisdiction over Iraq and Syria by his brother. Sources disagree here once again. Some say Talha's elevation came at the caliph's behest, while others portray his return as an unofficial coup in which he and Musa effectively sidelined al-Mu'tamid. Although these two narratives might seem irreconcilable at first glance, they begin to make sense once you consider the way this caliph's long reign played out. Talha was a man of great power throughout his brother's time on the throne years during which his leadership was indispensable to the recovering state. At the same time, the relationship between al-Mu'tamid and his popular brother progressively unraveled, with tensions occasionally coming dangerously close to open conflict. So there's a little truth in each take, but one is incomplete without the other. It is wise to stop here and ponder what else might be missing from our oral histories, and how it could in turn alter the way we imagine the past. Although we can never be certain of our understanding, it still behooves us to try and make sense of whatever material has survived. Anyway, let's return to our narrative. Talha's newfound authority over Syria and Iraq was largely theoretical, as there were several figurative and literal fires burning in these provinces and beyond we'll have to take a slow tour through the realm to assess the challenges that lay ahead. But before we get to the bad news, let's start with the good. There were already a couple important ways the new administration was an upgrade in stability over what came before. First of all, Talha was a Abbasid whose close relationship with Musa ibn Bugha enabled him to effectively command all of the caliph's armies. His presence grounded power in the hands of someone no soldier or general could aspire to become, a member of the ruling clan. It's worth noting that this was very close to what the free agent Turks I mentioned last time had demanded from al-Muhtadi before their union succumbed to infighting. Musa, Muflih, and other Turkish leaders were still crucial to the military, except now, with a competent Abbasid in charge, their efforts could finally be put to good use instead of being squandered in destructive competition. So that's stability on the military side. The civil administration also benefited from the return of a capable figure. Ubaidullah ibn Yahya ibn Khaqan, al-Mutawakkil's treasurer and vizier, was fished out of retirement and reappointed to his old post. He had narrowly avoided the assassin's blade back in December 861, and had gone into hiding for a couple years. He re-emerged during al-Musta'in's days when he tried going on pilgrimage, but was denied and kept under observation ever since. His reappearance at court signals the return of sanity in Samarra. 
there was clearly no better candidate for helping the Treasury recover from the last decade. I don't want you to get the wrong impression, though. The caliphate was stone broke, and it would remain woefully impoverished for another generation. Allah proved to be an excellent treasurer in other ways, too. Most importantly, friction between Al-Mu'tamid and Talha was minimal during his tenure. The official often found ways to smooth over any financial tensions by ensuring that each had enough to subsist independently of the other. Ubaidullah performed his duties admirably until he passed away in 877 and was succeeded by Talha's personal secretary, a sharp reminder of the imbalance of power between the caliph and his influential brother. We get an even more egregious example a few years later. Al-Mu'tamid caught the new treasurer red-handed in some financial impropriety and ordered he be removed. His call was overridden by Talha, making the caliph seem like he was even weaker than his brother's secretary. Another year or so down the line, the treasurer's indiscretions became too flagrant to ignore, and Talha had him replaced with another one of his bean counters. It's clear from this and other incidents that the Abbasid general had final say over pretty much all official appointments throughout his brother's reign, making him the true power in the land. With these positive reports on the newfound stability of the Caliphate's military and civil administration, I'm afraid we've run out of good news for today. Time for the bad. We are about to embark on our tour of the Caliphate to see what threats face the realm, and it is going to be an exceptionally messy journey. You might be thinking that we've been here before. Alaf Abdul Malik, Hisham, Al Safah, Al Mansur, and Al Ma'mun had to contend with empire wide rebellions. Let me assure you at the very outset, things were way worse this time. The Abbasids were faced with so many dangers that we're going to have a hard time just listing and introducing them. While the caliph was nominally the ruler of all Muslims, the reality was that his armies, or more accurately, his brother's armies, could only hold on to a fraction of Iraq and Syria. Everywhere else was either in open rebellion or had already been taken over by some rival power. These threats would rage on for decades simultaneously, making it impractical to progress through al-Mu'tamid's reign in a chronological fashion. Although tackling them one at a time takes away from the full picture, it may be our only option once again. Things were so dire that a survey of the unprecedented number of foes facing the Abbasid Caliphate amounts to a long and forgettable list of names and places. I think the most memorable way of introducing the mess which lies ahead is for us to cover the whole span of al-Mu'tamid's long reign to see how the Caliphate handled its many adversaries. The greatest danger facing the Ummah at the outset of his administration came from an uprising in the south of Iraq. It had begun as a slave revolt in the marshlands around Basra during al-Muhtadi's days, but in 870 it really kicked into high gear. The conflict ground on for over 15 years, and the number of civilian casualties reported is astronomically high, more than everything we've covered so far put together, perhaps millions. Talha sent commander after commander to bring the situation under control, 
then went to deal with it in person, but had nothing to show for all the blood and treasure poured into the fight. It's not like the Abbasids had the luxury of trying and failing at nausea. Every defeat robbed them of resources they could have used to face down other threats. While they prioritized the uprising in Basra at first, it was eclipsed by another danger in 876, this time from the east. See, the Tahirid governors of Khorasan started to lose their grip on power back in the early days of the anarchy. Lawlessness pervaded the province as they failed to face down the many challenges to their authority. This led to the rise of a new power in Sistan as a local coppersmith named Yusuf formed a coalition to defend the city from Karajite attacks. His spectacular triumph made a warlord out of Yusuf, and in a few short years he managed to vanquish the Tahirids and take over their capital of Nisapur. The Abbasids were so desperate by this point that they were willing to recognize him as governor of Khurasan and offered control over Baghdad, basically making his clan, the Safarids, the new Tahirids. But in this, Yusuf perceived weakness, and he didn't want to receive. He wanted to take. In 876, he led his armies into Iraq, prompting an ultimate showdown in which the Abbasids literally fought for their lives and won. Yusuf's defeat didn't put an end to the Safarid threat, but it did free the Caliphate to dedicate more resources than ever before to facing the uprising in Basra. It took another seven years of incremental progress for them to bring the rebels to heel, a feat Talha and his son pursued tirelessly, putting themselves at great risk. Having learned from their first eight years of failure, they took a new approach this time around. Generous amnesties were offered to anyone who abandoned the fight, and the military advance against the rest was patient and methodical. Dams were erected, canals were drained, and a whole military city was built next to the rebel base to coordinate the operation. This diligence paid off, and in 885, Basra and its surroundings were finally part of the Abbasid domain once again. Of the many enemies facing the Caliphate, these two we just described were the ones which came closest to ending the Abbasids. Our sources have so much to say about them that we'll dedicate an episode to each. There were serious problems emanating from the north and west too, however, but these are more difficult to discuss as they were not conflicts against a single party. A resurgent Byzantine empire sporadically attacked the caliphate, and its presence in the north encouraged others to exercise more autonomy than ever before. There were Zaydi Hashemites near Azerbaijan, and Al-Mu'tamid recognized an Armenian sovereign in an effort to keep them on board with the caliphate, a first for the Abbasids. There were also a number of Arab tribes ruling small territories independently, mainly in Mesopotamia and northern Syria. Finally, there was the Karajite threat posed by the region's nomadic tribes and mountainous Kurdish population. While these dangers sometimes loomed close to the imperial center, their main impact was financial. Mesopotamia used to be a major source of revenue for the caliphate, 
but the volatile situation made tax collection impossible. The challenges from the West were also financial in nature, but they came in a very different form. At first, the governor of Palestine plundered any wealth sent to Iraq through his lands. The Abbasids treated with him and appointed him governor in northern Mesopotamia, where he again went rogue. After that, the governor of Egypt, a Turkish commander named Ahmad ibn Tulun, began to reveal the true extent of his ambition. He cunningly strained the relationship between Talha and the caliph, hoping to replace the popular Abbasid general one day. While that plan was eventually foiled, Ibn Tulun took things a step further and more or less declared Egypt's political independence from the caliphate. What followed was a tug-of-war for the lands that lay between these two states, in which Syria and Mesopotamia switched hands a couple times around. We'll discuss these challenges in more depth down the line, but unfortunately that will still leave a number of other adversaries shortchanged. During Al-Mu'tamid's time, there were consequential developments for several Shiite sects, including the termination of the line of Imams. The Karmatians, or Qaramita, vicious enemies of the Ummah, get their first mention during his days. The Fatimid Dawa also came to light on his watch, before it witnessed its earliest successes way out west past Algeria. Then there were the Dulafids, who took western Iran for a spell, and the Habbaris, who took Sindh out of the Caliphate for good. We'll say a few words about these developments as necessary, but my point in parading them before you today is to show you just how fragmented the realm had become. Central government was a thing of the past. The post-anarchy world belonged to the warlords, anyone who could rest and hold a territory by force. Having covered the good and the bad, it is now time to turn our attention to the bittersweet. This podcast, dear listeners, is nearing its end. One sure sign is the conclusion of the first of our primary sources. Al-Yaqubi's history ends three years into Al-Mu'tamid's reign, with a long list of the many things going wrong in the world. My original plan was to conclude the show with Tabari's history, which wraps up in 915, but now I think I'll extend a little further. Al-Mas'udi goes on to 948, which presents a more fitting terminal as it coincides with the start of a new era in the Caliphate's politics, the Iranian Intermezzo. I don't want to back myself into a corner or anything, but I estimate we have about a dozen or so episodes to go. In them, we'll describe how a slow rebuilding of Abbasid's strengths made it seem like the old world was within reach, only for everything to come apart at the seams once again. The political realities of the new paradigm simply could not be ignored, and a single slip-up at the top undid decades of centralization and brought a patent end to Arab power. I sincerely hope that most of you listening to this podcast are living comfortably sometime in the future, and are therefore blissfully unaware of the interruption to our release schedule this summer. To those of you unfortunate enough to be keeping along in 2023, I deeply appreciate your sustained interest. 
I'd love to say that I can revert to my fortnightly tempo from here on out, but it looks like the rest of the year is going to stay busy. I promise to do what I can, though. It's fun for me to work on these, and thinking about the impending end of the pod has me feeling sentimental and inspired to dedicate as much time to it as I can. Hope to join you again soon, here on The Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power.